Lots of guests who are in the room, so if you are a guest with us and I didn't get a chance to meet you on your way in, my name is Bill and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here. We always love it when new folks come to our church and we would love the opportunities to connect with you. And the easiest way to do that is to have you text the word welcome to 817-755-1668. So if you don't get that number, it should be on the sticker on a seat back somewhere in front of you. What you'll receive back from us when you text the word welcome is a digital connection card. For those of you that are watching online, you can text that same number as well, or you can just um, say in the comments of our live feed, I'm new here, and we'll send you the same thing. We'd love to, to find out more about you and your family, how we could serve you, give you inform, information about the church, things like that. And so that's part of that relationship building process. And so for those of you that are here, if you have any questions about the church after the service this morning or any questions about things that you hear this morning as well, I'm going to make my way um, as soon as I'm finished out to the connection area. And so, so it's just out, out the doors to the right. So I'll be there. Um, would love to answer questions, just meet you, things like that. I'm glad that you're here. You know, one of the things that I think is a little bit unique about our church is that every time that there is a fifth Sunday in a month, so it happens about four times a year, is that we don't actually have services. We don't meet for service, but we go out to serve. And we call those Serve Sundays. And so we've actually got one coming up here in just a couple of weeks. And so we are um, preparing for Serve Sunday. We've got a list of projects that's available. And we would love for you uh, to sign up today, um, if at all possible, and let us know which projects that you want to be a part of so that we can get all the right things in the right places to get those projects uh, going. And so you can sign up this morning. Uh, on your way out, there are two small tables just on either side of the table kids banner in the lobby, um, a place where you can sign up um, and, and let us know. There's a list of uh, the projects that we have out there as well. So if you have questions, Somebody will be out there, probably Melissa, um, to answer questions and get you signed up. And we also, for those of you that want to contribute to those projects, there is a Amazon wish list as well uh, to donate a list, uh, to donate some of the, the uh, supplies that we need for the projects. And so it's like super easy. You just go on Amazon and it magically shows up here at the church. So if you want to participate in that way, um, we would greatly appreciate that as well. So Find somebody after the service, find me, find Melissa, find somebody that looks like they know what they're doing and ask about those things and, and we'll, we'll point you in the right direction. Let me pray for us and we'll jump into the message. Father, thanks so much for um, this time as we spend in your word. I pray that you would speak to us um, through the work of your Holy Spirit, convict us of things that need to change in our lives so that we can experience the life that you promised to give to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Doing a, a quick Google search you will quickly come to find a list of articles that talk about how social media is creating a self-absorbed generation. Some of those articles will talk about the highs that people receive from likes and shares. Others will talk about the anxiety that people feel when they're not getting the results from their posts that they think that they want to get. But I want to read an excerpt of an article that I came across a couple of weeks ago. Part of the reason I want to share this with you is because of the sharpness of the words of this article. It's from a website, so it's more of a blog post, um, but it's from a website called High Snobiety, which I think is the greatest um, name ever. High Snobiety, it's, the title is Social Media Has Created a Generation of Self-Absorbed Narcissists. So listen to this, th these words. 
A decade since the mass proliferation of Facebook, I challenge you to name a single development that has shaped mass culture in that period as much as social media. It's changed the way that we communicate. It's facilitated the victory of Donald Trump. It's separated, separated us into reality-distorting bubbles, elicits an addiction-like response in the human brain, and threatens to destroy the news industry. Listing all the ways that it has altered our world is a fool's errand as it's tracing all of its side effects. But there's an argument that I will make. It has turned an entire generation into vapid narcissists. From deceptive selfie angles that make average-looking people appear attractive to curating your Facebook feed so that it looks like you're having more fun than you actually are, social media has taken neoliberalism's self-centered mantra and pumped it full of cocaine-laced steroids. All social media platforms are comprised of a mass of individuals competing against each other for followers, likes, retweets, favorites, and whichever other show of approval exists out there rather than any sort of collective goal. Sure, this isn't its only purpose, and plenty of benign interaction occurs without any sort of agenda, but there are masses upon masses of people who utilize it as means of projecting an idealized version of themselves out into the world, an avatar of the person that they wish they were rather than who they are in reality. It's logical that such an extreme focus on self has a tendency to spill over into self-obsession. But this goes far beyond people to taking too many photos of themselves and treating every action as a hashtag opportunity. Every life event, however, irrelevant to their social media audience becomes a source of self-promoting content. Consider the utterly ridiculous phenomena of people wishing their parent a happy birthday even though the parent isn't on Facebook. I doubt that anyone would be able to explain why they do it. Because it's likely a reflexive behavior. They've learned that sharing gets a validation, which feels good, so they continue to share. Every like and retweet gives the brain a small rush of dopamine comparable to a tiny hit of Coke. That's why people pathetically attach hashtag tags for likes, or hashtag likes for likes, and hashtags likes, the number for likes, on their Instagram photos. The yearning for validation is so pronounced that it has spawned an entire exchange economy where people pimp themselves out to the world, offering to repay insincere engagement with equally insincere engagement. The sentiment doesn't matter as long as that little ego-affirming notification bubble pops up on their screens. Now, I don't believe that this problem is new. I think that what social media has done is just put a magnifying glass on a problem that has always existed, that all of us have, and that problem is that we want life to be all about me. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Like if you could go back in time and tell your younger self something, maybe a, a big life lesson that you've learned as you got older, but if older me could go back and tell younger me something, I would say this, it's not about you. You're going to try to make life about you, but you can't. Naturally, you're going to fall into a tendency of making life about you, but you have to fight with everything you, ha you have to not end up there where life is about you, because if you do, then what your life is going to be filled with is a string of disappointments, hurts, and maybe even potentially broken relationships. It's not about you. This morning, 
We are continuing our series. We've been in in the last couple of weeks through the first two chapters of the book of Philippians. It's called Not Done Yet. So in this series, we're talking both about how God is not done yet in terms of what he wants to do in us as well as what he wants to do through us. And if there is one thing that God's not done yet in terms of what he wants to do in us, it's helping us to understand and then live according to the idea that life is not about me. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you've got a Bible, I would invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it's going to be on the screen as I read it in just a second. Or um, if you have your smartphone, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. Uh, just want to let you know some of the resources that are there. A lot of our small groups are using the questions that are there uh, to facilitate their small group discussions during the week. And so looking at those questions might be helpful to just think through some of what we talk about on Sundays or maybe to, to apply it further. So that resource is in our live event. I think that scripture in a lot of different places describes this reality that we can't make life about me. I think that there is no clearer place in all of scripture that describes that reality outside of the, the passage that we're looking at this morning in Philippians chapter 2. So here are the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church in Philippi. He says this, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and kind of the way he's arguing this, he's like, hey, these are all things that are true because of our shared relationship with Jesus. And so then he says this in verse 2, make my joy complete, thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a ton in that section. In fact, we could spend weeks dissecting and analyzing all that it says. But for our purpose this morning, I really want us to hone in on the idea that we read in verse 5. Verse 5 is really kind of a hinge uh, in, in the section that we're looking at this morning. And as I read it, it says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Other versions say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I kind of like that language, the, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. But as we read that, we've got to ask ourselves the question, well, what does that mean? What is this mind that Jesus had that we also should have? I would define it as this. It is humility that seeks the good of others, even at personal expense. So the mind of Jesus, the attitude that Jesus had that we are also to have, is an attitude of humility that seeks the good of others, even at personal expense. And I want you to stop and think about how hard that is. 
It is incredibly difficult. And as we read that, in fact, as we read everything that we read this morning, we should be uncomfortable and challenged by what we read because this attitude, this humility that seeks the good of others, even at personal expense, is, goes against everything that we know. It goes against who we are naturally. It goes against our culture because our culture says, you be you. You have to watch out for yourself. You have to promote yourself. That's the only way that you're going to be, get ahead because nobody else is watching out for you. But then Paul says, no, here's the attitude that you should have. It's humility that seeks the good of others, even if it costs you something. Now, again, I want you to think about how challenging this is. It goes against who we are naturally. It goes against our culture because everything in culture puts ourselves at the center to the point that I'm not even sure we even recognize it most of the time. I heard culture, a definition of culture years ago, and culture was described this way. It's the water in which we swim. So in other words, the guy said, look, if you ask a fish, how's the water? He's going to look at you like, I don't understand what you're talking about because it is what it is. Right? And so this, our culture shapes us so much that we don't even understand all of the places that we put ourselves at the center. And so I'm going to give you some examples, some things to think about this morning. First, let's talk about the church. So I want you to think about this. When you think about what makes a great church, what do you think about? Now, we have lots of folks that are part of our church that are in church for the very first time or for the very first time in a long time. And for those of you that are here, and and that's part of your story, you're here because you're looking for something. And I think that's great. Maybe you're looking for a place to belong. You're looking for something to put your hope in. Uh, Maybe you're looking for answers to, to questions about life. And all of those things are really good. In fact, we uh, have laid out over the last couple of years what we refer to as our table pathway. It's got four stages to it. But it, what it is is the stages of growth as a follower of Christ that we go through. And the first stage is the explore stage, where it's all about asking questions. And when you're in that stage, we want you to ask questions so that we can give you the answers. We want you to be convinced about what you believe in. But in that first stage, really, naturally, because of the questions, because of where we are, it's about us. We just can't stay there. But a lot of people fall into the trap of thinking that church is about me. And so for a lot of people, when they think about what makes a great church, they think about a place where they are growing. They think about a church that has the programs that they like or music that inspires their worship. A church that has a place for them where they can belong and and, and maybe even serve and use their giftedness Uh, to help other people. And all of those things in and of themselves are really good. We want you to be growing. We want to be a place where that is helping you grow in your faith. Uh, We want you to have a place where you are serving, where you feel like you belong, but at some point it can't just be all about us. Because what happens if we ask somebody else to come into your place because we value multiplication over comfort? Or what happens on a given Sunday when somebody comes in and sits in your seat because we love it when new folks come? Or what happens when you're not the sole focus of the leadership's attention anymore? See, at some point we have to move beyond just what church does for me and begin to think not what do I get, but what can I give 
to multiply the kingdom of God. So that's church. Let's talk about marriage. Again, I'm asked the same question. Like when you think about marriage, what makes a great marriage? I'll start with the guys. Guys, when you think about what's the ideal picture in your mind of marriage? Likely something like this. That you walk in after a long day's work and people just leave you alone (laughs) so that you can decompress. And then at some point you're served a meal that's exactly to your liking. That your home is a place of peace and tranquility where all of your needs are met and your wife, her life purpose is to make you happy. You know why those things are funny? It's because they're only slight exaggerations of what we really think. Ladies, don't laugh too hard. Because I want you to think about the ideal marriage. Like for you, you want your husband to be the knight in shining armor that comes home and attends to all of your needs, who is always communicative and your hearts are intertwined together and there's birds chirping in the background because what you want is the fairy tale. But what if marriage isn't about me? What if marriage wasn't designed to meet all of my needs, but it was designed to expose my sinfulness and my selfishness and help me grow through it? What if the purpose of marriage was far more geared towards my holiness than it is my happiness? Our natural tendency with all that we are is to make life all about me. It shows up in how we view church a lot of times. It shows up in how we view marriage. But the reality is it shows up in all areas of life. I want you to think about this. What is your ideal commute? I'll tell you what mine is. Where I get on the road and people magically move to the side like Moses parting the Red Sea, because they know that the things that I do are really important. What about your relationship to government? Right? You want all the laws passed that you want passed that you feel like are the best for you. Outside of that, you want to be left alone, and you would love for the IRS to call you every year and say, hey, how much taxes do you want to pay this year? Because that's all we're going to charge. (laughs) We want life to be about me. And so often there are people that get stuck living their lives that way, with me at the center, And do you know what their life story is filled with? Broken relationships, disappointments, frustrations, and bitterness because people would not do for them what they wanted them to do for them and they don't understand why. Jesus once said this, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you get to the point where you're willing to lose your life for my sake, That's where you'll find it. I'll give you a paraphrase. If you want to put yourself at the center of your own existence, do you know what you'll get? A lost life. But if you're willing to put Jesus at the center of your life, following his example in everything that you do, what you're going to find is that's where life is truly found. Naturally, we want life to be all about me. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, we are called to live radically others-centered lives. And I use that word on purpose, radical. I think it's one that's got a lot of emotion built into it. And I don't use it because it's like radically new, but yet at the same time, it is radically different than the way that our culture tells us to live. And also at the same time, it is incredibly difficult to do and live out consistently. 
But those of us who are followers of Jesus, that's what we are called to do. We are called to live radically others-centered lives. So what does that look like? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us at least three things to consider in this passage. So I want to draw your attention back to verse 3. The first thing that he says, as we think about what it means to live a radically other-centered life, he says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Here's my paraphrase. Do nothing solely for the sake of winning so that you get the credit. Now notice what it doesn't say. Paul does not say, and do the best you can to try not to do most things solely for the purpose of winning so that you get the credit. He says, do nothing solely for the purpose of winning so that you get the credit. Now, i got to be honest. That is incredibly counter to my nature. I'll just be honest. Like I want to do most things solely for the sake of winning so that I get the credit. Like That's the world that we live in. And when you grow up playing sports... What is the purpose of going out onto the field or the court? It's to win. It's not to have fun because you have fun when you win. And when you win, you get the credit. And so this is just reinforced over and over again. Like do this to win so that you get the credit. But Paul said do nothing solely for the purpose of winning so that you get the credit. Second thing that he says, verse 3 again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Now again, notice what it doesn't say. It does not say consider others as equally as important as yourself. It says consider others as more important than yourself. Now I want to stop here and I want us to kind of think about the way that these two things apply in marriage. Because typically when we think about marriage, we think fairness and equality. It's a division of responsibilities, each of us kind of doing, doing our, our part to make marriage work. That's, that's the way we think. And if we're really honest to somewhere in the back of our minds, maybe we never actually say this or state it, but we all function on a point system. So if I do something to contribute to the needs of the family, I get a point. If my wife does something that meets the needs of the family, she gets a point. So if I do something nice, I get a point. She does something nice, she gets a point. Now, again, I want to win. At the same time, I'm not interested in a boat race, right? I'm not going to lap Mandy, but man, like if I can end the day one or two points higher so that I can hold that over her head at some point, it's good. It's not about me. It's not about getting one more point. It's not about equality and fairness. The reason it can't be that way is because in our sinfulness and selfishness, we always think my fair share is more than your fair share. We all do it. It's not about me. It's not about doing anything for the sole purpose of winning so that you get the credit. It's not just like treating people equally, but it's treating people better than yourselves. I have a frustration with Christian marriage curriculum. I'm going to share it with you. because And so I don't know if you've ever like done a, a Bible study using a, a marriage curriculum or gone to a conference and heard people speak. You've probably heard this before, but honestly, you probably didn't even register with you because it sounded really good. But here's my problem with a lot of Christian marriage curriculum that's out there today. Basically, you'll hear something like this. Hey, do this so that you get that. It's almost like be selfless so that you can get what you want. 
Be selfless so that you can be selfish. Like, so guys, we go to men's conferences and it's like, hey, listen, guys, if you want your wife to, to be nicer to you, like what you need to do is like be more involved at home. Like, listen, just go home one day and vacuum the floor and watch what your wife does. Or it's like, like to wives, like, hey, if you want your wife to be more attentive or your husband to be more attentive to you, then you need to respect him more. And so it's like, if you do this, this is what you get. And I say, listen, that's terrible because it's not about doing the right thing because of what you get out of it. We're supposed to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. It's not do this so that you get that. It's just do this because this is what's right. That's what love is. I sometimes explain it this way to people, that our marriage mentality needs to be, I will do everything and expect nothing. Like, I will do everything and expect nothing. Now, living that out is incredibly difficult. And I will tell you, it kind of only works if both parties have the same mentality. I will do nothing and expect everything. But I think that's the standard that we're called to. Because it's not about us. Third thing Paul says uh, that defines for us a radically other-centered life is in verse 4. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. And finally, we get into verse 4, and Paul gives us a break because he does say that we are allowed to think about our own interests and our own needs, but we just can't think solely about our own interests or our own needs. We also have to think about the needs of others. And so when we make decisions, it's not just about me, but I have to think about the needs and interests of others around me. Living this radical, others-centered life is incredibly difficult. I mean, it is so hard because everything in our world and our culture says it is about you, but we're called to be different. And so we're going to have to fight this battle for the rest of our lives, and it's the hardest thing that we would ever undertake. And because of that, some of you might be thinking, like, what's even the point? If this is a battle that we're going to have to face for the rest of our lives, like, why even try? My answer would be, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, Hopefully, because our life goal is to be made more like Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He is the example for us. Verse 6. And verses 6 to 11, a lot of scholars believe that this is actually an early church hymn. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 6 says, He who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God, it's something to be exploited. Let me explain what, what Paul's writing about there. Jesus is and has always been God. Prior to his incarnation, though, he existed in the form of God where he enjoyed all of the rights and privileges of being God. Think about this. Sit on a throne, angels all around you, singing about how good you are all the time. Because he is God, that was his experience. But he didn't consider equality with God, the rights and privileges of being God, something that he needed to hold on to for the sake of proving who he was. But he was willing to give those things up. 
to empty himself, to take upon himself the form of a slave, to come to this earth and be born in the flesh. And in so doing, he did something that we could not do on our own. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross, to rescue us from our sins. We couldn't do nothing about it. But Jesus humbled himself, became a servant, to die in our place so that we could be brought into a relationship with God that should change everything about us and last forever. That's the humility that seeks the good of others, even at incredible personal expense. It costs Jesus his very life. It's not about you. It's an incredibly difficult thing to live up to. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, maybe it's that still small voice in those moments that we're thinking, man, life's not fair. Why don't people care about me? Maybe the Holy Spirit whispers in our ear, it's not about you. Because that's the example that Jesus set for us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, God, I pray that you would expose the sinfulness and selfishness that exists in our hearts, even in those places of our lives that we don't even recognize on a daily basis. Because it's who we are. It's who our culture says that we are and the way that our culture says that we're supposed to live. But Father, through the work of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to live radically others-centered lives. To follow the example of Jesus who laid down his life for us so that by faith in him, our lives could be changed forever. Father, thanks for your grace and your love that continues to pursue us in spite of our faults and failings. God, it's in the name of our Savior Jesus, the name that is above every name. One day the na- at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.